All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to Galatians chapter 5. We are starting a new sermon series today, one that's going to be a little topical than uh, most, on the fruit of the Spirit. Um, If you've been with us for some time, Communion Church, here we tend to preach straight through books of the Bible. Uh, We do this because this is a method that forces us um, to, to confront the whole counsel of God. Rather than picking and choosing the parts that we may deem important, what we want to say and what we may want to skip. And this picking and choosing is a very easy thing to do. Because if you actually read your Bible, you will find that God seems overly concerned with things that we aren't. Right? Hell, depravity, repentance, to name a few. He also doesn't spend all that much time on the things that we obsess over individual rights and equity, to name a few. And so as we go straight through books, uh, while also trying to move between different genres of the Bible, going from Old Testament to New Testament, our hope is that God's priorities come through, that we are reshaped by what He says is important. And so week after week, we are building an alternative way of viewing the world by not allowing our questions to dominate but by allowing Jesus to become the answer that defines the very questions that we ask. Now, there's another way to study the Bible, and that is systematically, also called thematically or topically. And when you do this, you, take, um, you look at a single idea through the whole narrative of Scripture. right? So rather than digging into one book and, and looking at everything in sort of a very specific context, you take one idea and you trace it throughout the whole Bible. Right? So you could take a concept like, say, let's say grace. Right? And we go back to Genesis, and in Genesis we see why grace is necessary. And then starting with Abraham, we begin to see um, the story of how God is going to pour out his grace on his creation, but particularly on the people that he has called out as his own. We then see clearly his people failing to respond rightly to the grace that they have been shown, which just makes his grace more gracious. We then see that even though his people have turned away from him completely, he's still going to act on their behalf by coming in the flesh and rejecting the temptation of sin and giving his life to purchase his people from their deserved end. The Bible then goes on to show us that the church is built on this grace. The people of God are formed by this grace. The Bible is the story of how unworthy sinners have been saved by the loving mercy of God. And in the end, we see that we will dwell in the glory of His grace for eternity. Right? That's the story of grace through the whole Bible. That's a very summarized version, by the way. There's a lot more details. But no chapter of the Bible covers all of that. Paul tries a few times in Romans, but... It takes a systematic view to pull all of these parts together to form the grand narrative of grace. And this is also true of some of the other ideas and and threads that God weaves through His Word. And so as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to take each one as an idea fleshed out through Scripture that warrants a thematic approach. Now as we do this, I want to make it clear that we are still allowing God to set the agenda. Right? We're not just picking fruit on a whim. 
we're focusing on the fruit of the Spirit that are presented to us in Galatians chapter 5. And so what we're going to do today is look at those fruit of the Spirit in context to get an idea of what they are and how we should relate to them. And so this is an introductory sermon. This gives us the foundation for the rest of the series. And the sermon title is, What are Spiritual Fruits? Which is really the question that we are going to be answering today. What are spiritual fruits? And then starting next week, we're going to go through each of them one by one, um, seeing how to put these into practice. So let's get into it. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 16. It says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul presents us here with the first of two contrasts he's going to to introduce. Um, Now the book of Galatians is filled with contrasts and contradictions, uh, so much so that a few years ago when we preached through Galatians, we titled the series, Verses. Um, because basically it's this versus this, this versus this. Um, Paul is continually describing the Christian life in contrast to the alternative. The first contrast that we have here is walking by the Spirit versus walking by the flesh. And the first thing that we can say in that is that there's a difference between how a Christian acts and how a non-Christian acts. Should be pretty straightforward. That should be pretty obvious. People argue it all the time. Paul wants to make it very clear that the pull towards syncretism, which is being just like the world around us, that this is not a Christian endeavor. There is walking by the Spirit, and there is walking in the flesh, and they come from different sources, and they produce different results. And as Christians, we should be driven by the desire to follow the Spirit as we are sanctified to be more and more like the people God created us to be. And as we do this, we should not be surprised or shocked when those walking in the flesh look at us like we're crazy. It tells us the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. There will be times when walking with the Spirit requires us to stand against fleshly desires. Again, this should not surprise us because the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to one another. We live in a world that is driven by the fleshly, and those of the Spirit are not aiming for the same thing. And so our walk, our way of living, what we do, what we prioritize, how we choose to act is going to look strange. The second thing that Paul points out here is that walking by the Spirit actually keeps us from gratifying the flesh. In other words, in this life you will be tempted. Every one of us is in the flesh. Every one of us is going to face temptations And we all are going to be drawn to sinful gratification. The best defense to temptation is to have something greater that you aspire to. None of us have the willpower to resist the desires of the flesh. They're not just some bad thing out there trying to convince us that it is good. 
They are the very things that we naturally want. And so that's, that's number one. We will all have fleshly desires. You will be drawn to these things. And the best way to reject those things that are bad, that are negative, that you should not be pursuing is not going to be to white-knuckle it. It's not going to be by trying to kind of be strong enough. Because the desire is still going to be there. That desire is going to follow you around, nagging at you constantly. And so what you need is a better desire. A more complete idea of where we're going and what is important. When we are striving toward something good, it is possible to say no to that which gets in the way. Which is to say, when we walk by the Spirit, when God is our ultimate desire, then we refuse to gratify the things that keep us from Him. Let me show you what I mean in a slightly benign example. I like ice cream. That's the whole point. I can't think of a good reason to say no to ice cream. It's 10 degrees outside, I don't care. I'll put on a sweater, I will eat the ice cream. The instant gratification of ice cream, right? The taste, the texture, I'm salivating as I speak. This is not hard to convince me of. That is a natural desire for me. Now, are there reasons for me to say no to ice cream? Sure. It may not be the healthiest thing in the world. But that's not a powerful enough reason for me, right? The things that are good are more powerful than what I see as the negative. Now, imagine I get diagnosed with diabetes, which with the way I'm talking about ice cream may seem like it is inevitable. Um, But if I was all of a sudden diagnosed with diabetes, that, that changes the whole thing. Because now my desire to live, see my future grandchildren, that is a desire that is bigger than the momentary love for ice cream. Right? That would be the thing that is powerful enough for me to say no to this thing that I so, so love. Right? Let's move on from ice cream. God has provided the fruit of the Spirit for us to be this greater desire, desire to be this priority that is bigger than anything that is right in front of us. And so while the Holy Spirit is mysterious and and personal, acting in our lives to guide us and shape us in very specific situations, we see here that walking by the Spirit does have some concreteness to it as well. In the fruit of the Spirit, God is telling us that we can hold these up as the ultimate goal. This should be the direction that we are all going to keep us from fleshly desires. And so this list of fruit is a gift to us from God. These are goals for us to prioritize so that we can confidently walk toward these things, pushing away anything that gets in our way. And in this, they act as protection for us. They give us these tangible characteristics to cultivate and strive for. And so this is the first answer to the question, what are spiritual fruit? They are the means by which God leads his people and protects them from the destructive results of following our own fleshly desires. Paul now builds on this. That's part one of five. Verse 18, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
So we have a second contrast here, right? First contrast is walking by the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. Now we have liberty versus law, right? Freedom versus sort of obedience to the written law. Paul is saying that the Christian has freedom if they are led by the Spirit. That is to say, if someone is striving to follow God's way, as summarized in the spiritual fruits, then they no longer need the written law in the same way that they did before. Now, let's talk for a second about what that means because people mess this up all the time. When God introduces the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, He declares that the law will be put in the hearts of His people. Right? This is what it says. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the promise of the coming Holy Spirit, who will dwell in the heart of, hearts of believers, and will make it possible for all Christians to do what is good and what is right, to live and walk in step with the Spirit. That is to say, we have a way of accessing God's good way that those under the old covenant did not. Now, this doesn't mean that God's law is somehow not valid. That's the way that I hear people use this all the time. The idea of Christian freedom being that grace covers us so we can do whatever we want. Right? Do what you want and just kind of ask forgiveness later. No. No, the freedom that God gives us is not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom from sin, which means instead of our fleshly desire being so powerful that we cannot overcome it, the freedom of the Spirit says, you now have the strength to follow God as you should. Galatians 5 that we're in starts with this. It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, you've been given the gift of freedom from the destruction of sin. Don't use your liberty to go and put yourself back under that bondage. Instead, use this gift, use this strength that you have been given to grow and to mature and be built up in God's way. You have the Spirit. This means you actually can follow God's good way. Do it. This process is described even more clearly by Paul in Romans chapter 6. He says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's description of freedom from sin is slavery to God. In other words, freedom is only a good thing. Liberty is only a good thing when it's connected to God's good, when we submit to Him. As soon as freedom leads you to harming yourself and others, you're no longer free. You're under the control of sin. And so what we need is not unhindered freedom, as some people believe, but a freedom that leads us to follow in God's good way. We see the fruit in Romans 6 mentioned as, as the outworking of obedience to God, right? It says the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. 
Now, sanctification is the process by which we are being made holy, right? As the Spirit gives us the strength to overcome more and more of our fleshly desires. Now, it might first appear that the fruit that Paul is talking about in Romans and Galatians are different. But a person who has been given the fruit that leads to sanctification in Romans will develop the characteristics of fruit in Galatians. Now, the role that the fruits play in sanctification is that they guide our liberty. They help us to know what following God leads to. Which is to say, they help to show us how to exercise our freedom, and they are also the benefit that we receive from this freedom. Let me show you what I mean. We'll take the first of the fruits mentioned in verse 22. The first fruit mentioned is love. Right now, if we begin to say love is a lens now by which we see the world, it is how we should relate to others, it's what we should make ourselves do. Right? Jesus states that, right? What is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This becomes the summary of the whole law. And as we live this out, as we lo- act lovingly towards other people, we will actually develop a real love for them in our hearts. Which is to say, you love, you act lovingly, not because you always feel loving, but you act lovingly and it will actually develop the love within you. It will make you a more loving person. And I'll just add, there's a secondary benefit. If you act lovingly towards people, they're more likely to act lovingly towards you. It's just a little, little hint, a little cheat, cheat code for life. Now, I often tell people at the beginning, this is, this is, this is kind of, well, when you start putting this into practice, where you're trying to kind of overcome your own desires, it, it can feel kind of clunky, right? You have to be very intentional about doing what you don't feel like doing, and it can feel forced because you have to actively overcome your pull towards the flesh, which in the case of love is selfishness. But the more that you invest love in something, the more you will actually value and care for it. You actually put the loving value into something by practicing love towards it. And what that means is what starts as little more than obedience to God actually ends up totally changing your desire. Your ability to love will grow as you put love into practice. Now, what this means is that we don't have to sit on our hands and wait for our desires to change. The fruit of the Spirit actually helps propel us to maturity. And so this is the second and third answer to the question, what are the spiritual fruits? They are the means and the product of sanctification. They are the way to get to where we're going, and they are actually the end of where we are going. Paul continues to add to this definition in verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul makes an interesting statement here. I find it interesting anyway. 
He tells us that the works of the flesh are evident to those who walk in the Spirit. Now, I say that's, that's interesting because a lot of the times people want to argue over all these things. Is that really bad? Did God really say? Now, one of the main reasons why human beings want to approach moral issues, or one of the reasons why is because human beings want to approach moral issues from a fleshly perspective. Right? And from an earthly perspective, then, um, we can kind of look at things and go, I don't feel like it's that bad. What are the results? Is it really hurting anyone? And we begin to kind of normalize sin. But it's only normal because we're allowing ourselves to view the world through the flesh. The moment that we step back and actually view the world through the Spirit, it becomes very evident what doesn't lead us to God's good. So let's look at this list and see how that works. The first three things on this list, I'll go by categories. We're not going to go through each one individually. Um, The first three are from the realm of sex, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Um, Now, God created sex to be a good and enjoyable part of the marriage relationship. Um, And once we understand it in relation to the one flesh unity of marriage and kind of the vulnerable sharing of yourself with the person that you have committed your life to, it takes on a very specific beauty. Sex becomes a very specific thing that is good, that God created good. And then when this is the image of sex that you hold, then all that does not reflect this goodness becomes a distortion. And as Paul would say, it becomes evidently wrong. And rather than having to to argue the pros and cons of every form of sexual immorality, we can simply say, not God's good. This isn't how God created it to function. This isn't the beauty that God made. And so the fruit of the Spirit gives us an image from which to see what is not of God. The next two in this list are related to religion, uh, idolatry and sorcery. Um, These are both forms of adding to the gospel from a desire to make God more tangible. Right? So idolatry says God's revelation isn't enough, so now I have to make a statue because somehow that elevates it. Um, sorcery basically says God's miraculous power is not enough, so now I have to bring in something that, that, that makes it more obvious and evident in the moment. But both of these are only necessary if you are discontent with God and how he has chosen to reveal himself. Right? A true vision of God's glory makes idolatry and sorcery look foolish. If you have the true fruit, you don't need the add-ons. The next eight in this list, yes, the next eight all go together, and they're all re- they all refer to relationships, the way that we act towards others. The next eight are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Now, it's very interesting that in a list that is by no means exhaustive, Paul even at the end goes, and things such as these, there's a much longer list that he has not made. But even in the list that he makes here, eight of them are about relational tension. Now, when most of us think about desires of the flesh and kind of like following your earthly desires, we don't think of like fighting with people. I don't think that's usually what comes to mind. Yet, these are the outworkings of the desires to have, to belong, 
to gain power, and to control. Which is to say, most people don't set out wanting to have enmity with people. But the gratification of the flesh leads to being at odds with others. I've always appreciated how James describes this in James chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we gratify the desires of the flesh and it leads to a place where we create rivalries and dissensions and divisions. We're jealous and we have envy and this leads us to fight and quarrel. Now, this spirit of rivalry and division is all around us. I don't think that I need to convince you that it exists. Maybe that'll be for a different sermon. Um, There's fighting everywhere. Many of you are feeling it within your own friends and family groups. What I want to make clear is that this is a natural outworking of allowing the flesh to drive us. And this collateral damage has become absolutely normal to us. We go, yeah, it's just kind of part of what we have to deal with. But it's massively at odds with the world that God created. It is against the fruit of the Spirit. Right? When we see that God created us to live in harmony with one another in relation to Him, we can begin to push back against kind of the cult of independence that says it's every person for themselves to get what they need. That I can't trust anyone else and so I have to protect what I have. We can reject the lie of self that tells us that being authentic is the goal. That anything that takes away from our truest self is an attack on us. We can repent and forgive even though in that act we might feel like it costs us something. And we can do this because it is so obviously at odds with the unity that God called us for, created us for, sorry, and calls us to pursue. The fruit of the Spirit makes it evident that fighting with others is pointless and actually working against God. When James tells us, you do not have because you do not ask, What is being implied here is that God actually wants to provide for us all of the things that we are trying to fill that is causing the fights. Our desires come from a place of lack, right? He says, we desire and we do not have, so we sin against others. God says, come to me. I am willing and able to meet your needs. And so the fruit of the Spirit is there to show us that God provides for us. Not by gratifying our earthly desires, not by giving us what we think we need, but by changing us to desire Him, to make us who we were supposed to be in the relationship and the order we were meant to exist in. All right, the last two on Paul's list are issues of excess, drunkenness and and orgies. And I'll just say, I don't know why the ESV used this word in the translation. Um, I went through every other translation. You get words like revelry, carousing, wild parties, and we have orgies. Um, No, we don't. Um, (laughs) Scratch that. Can you edit that? Thanks. 
And the issue there is that that brings uh, into mind a very specific kind of party. Um, this is talking about really anything that is, is, is above and crazy and where you're out of control. Whew. <laughs> the idea here is actually taking something that is good, that God created good, and taking it to, to limits and allowing it to, to, sorry, beyond the limits, and t- allowing it to take over and control you. And since the, some of the fruits of the Spirit are discipline and, and self-control, being one of the fruits, this is backwards. And if you've lived in this world for any amount of time, this gets people into a lot of trouble. When you don't have control over yourself, when you uh, act in, in excess, that tends to be where people are creating all sorts of problems that are, well, outside of their control. Creating a mess to clean up later. Now, in all of these, we see that the fruit acts as mirrors to make evident to us what is not of God. And if you are walking in the Spirit and pursuing the fruit, then these temptations and false alternatives can be seen for exactly what they are. And I'll add, um, this is also uh, why, as a church, we don't spend all of our time kind of talking about all the things that are bad out there. Right? People have asked me this before. Why don't you spend a lot more time talking about what we should be avoiding, what we should not be doing? Other churches are doing it, and I get it. It's not that we never do that, but, but we certainly spend less time on it than, than a lot of other places. But the reason is because we want to present God's ideal to you. We want to show you God's good. We want to show you what it is that, that, that God has set forth for his people And once you know what is good, once you know what is our priority, then everything else can kind of go away. You can begin to see not only the things I choose to point out, but all of the other things that you are going to interact with in your life day after day. We want you to see and know the real thing so that all false options can be recognized. To those who are walking in the Spirit, the fruit of the flesh are evident. And so this is the fourth part of our answer, what are the spiritual fruits? They are the lens by which we view all of the options of the world. We already said that the fruit help us to not feed our desires by giving us a better goal. Here they act as this beautiful picture to us that makes sin look pathetic in comparison. All right, Paul has one more thing to add to his definition. Verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Right? So here are the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are where we are going to spend the next nine weeks Now, in introducing them, Paul tells us that against such things there is no law. In a sense, he is saying this is righteousness in its purest form. These are the characteristics of a person who has been transformed by God. This is the character of who we will be in eternity. And I find that helpful. Because I don't want to invest in something that's going to change like the seasons. I've already had enough fads in my life. But the fact that embracing the fruit of the Spirit helps us to prepare for eternity 
That is a solid place to put your time and effort. That is, that is, that is a, a, a goal that is not going to burn out or run out as you get older. And Paul tells us here that all who belong to Christ will see it as a good investment. They will spend their time and their lives working toward holiness. And specifically, the work that he describes or mentions here is crucifying the flesh. This is the idea that we have these competing desires within us, right? The spirit and and the flesh. And we must work with the spirit to purge ourselves of the sin in our lives. Now, up to this point, much of what we've been addressing are things outside of ourselves, right? Kind of these temptations that our, our sinful flesh draws us to. But when Paul talks about crucifying the flesh here, he's referring to the root of sin, the desire that is deep within us. And the hardest part of separating what is sinful in us from what is not is that what is, is in, kind of ingrained so deeply is intertwined with our person. So much so that we begin to believe that this sin is us. And when people point it out, and they go, eh, I'm not really sure that that's what a Christian would do. We get defensive. We get mad. We tend to go to the lawyers in our heads that have already have a case written for us about why it's actually okay. We justify our sin and convince ourselves, no, I'm okay. I don't need to change. And this is where the fruit of the Spirit comes in. Right, because they are God's standard that reveal the parts of us that are not in line with Him. And so when we're trying to separate the flesh from the Spirit, it is the fruit that helps us to see what needs to go. We gain clarity by weighing ourselves against the standard given here. And so this is the fifth part to the question, what are the spiritual fruits They assist us in separating the good that God designed into us from the sin that has corrupted. And when we add this to the other four, we start to get a pretty robust definition of of what the spiritual fruit are. They are the way that God leads His people and protects them from the destructive results of following their own fleshly desires. They are the means of sanctification. They are the product of sanctification. They are the lens by which we view all of the options of the world. And they assist us in separating the good that God designed into us from the sin that has corrupted. In all of this, we see that the fruit of the Spirit is not just kind of good things that we should aspire to. No, these are one of the gifts that God gives His people to build them up and form them, to help us along the way as we live in this world. The same could be said of the church. Right? God has given this body of people to help sanctify you to help you know what your sin is, to help you know what's good, to, 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 to aid you along the way. And so when we come together each week, it's not just to go through the motions and do a set of specific things. No, the singing and the prayer and the reading of the Word, these are how God has told us to worship Him and how He promises to strengthen and shape His people. We see this most clearly in the act of communion. Right, communion is the continual act of coming to Jesus, proclaiming our need for Him, and trusting that He will provide. 
And every week when we take it, we focus on a slightly different part of what it means and what it gives to us. And so today, as you approach the table, come as a person whose desires are at war within you, asking Jesus to help you walk in the Spirit so that you can experience all of the benefits of the spiritual fruit in your life. Come desperate knowing that He wants to provide for all of your needs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all the ways in which you guide us and shape us. Um, We thank you specifically today for, for the fruit of the Spirit, this list of things that we so easily read and nod our heads and move on to the next thing. God, help us to see the great benefit of investing in the way that you have both created and have commanded God, you are so good to us, and we just pray that you would help us to um, actually live out of the grace that we have been given. Help us to never take your grace for granted, thinking that it is a, a card to just sin as we want and, 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 and get it cleansed later. Instead, help us to see how much you paid in order that we would be rescued And help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gift that we have been given. We just thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.